trial for seminarians and for other professions too, especially the helping professions. And uh, it always, always has to do with mother was a close figure, father was distant and uh, foreboding. And uh, I never, never have had trouble with men friendships, ever. I'll start them no matter where. And I got to seminary and I thought, I'm on another planet. What in the world is going on here? And it was for me like another planet. And then I found a guy who was a radical liberal, but he was male. <laughs> and we started drinking together every night. We both thought the other one was nuts, but by George, uh, we could connect at the level of we both had fathers. And so the subject matter didn't really finally make a great difference. Men don't connect at the level of cognitive agreement, finally. We connect at the level that's like band of brothers. That's where we connect. I don't care if the tail gunner in my B-17 is Jewish. I just want to know that he can shoot. Huh? Huh? Men connect at ways that don't primarily turn on cognitive agreement. Um, but my whole, my whole world, my whole world was the opposite of what a seminarian's world was. My whole world was a problem with my mother. We had a 17-year fight without one single break in it. And with my father, I never had to have a fight. There wasn't any reason to. I just always wondered why he married that woman. That's <laughs> All right. Hope that's of help to you. Yeah. Okay. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, again, not as we ought, but as we're able, we praise and magnify your name. We give you special thanks for what you've accomplished for us in reconciling us to yourself in the death and resurrection of your beloved Son. And today we give you thanks for those fathers who fathered sons and daughters. We thank you for that and for those of us who were very given very short end of the stick on that, we'd ask that you would grant that, that some of that would be made up even later in life to the glory of your name. For we ask it for the sake of Jesus. Amen. 9 to 12, right here, Saturday morning. You'll hear stories about <laughs> Giving anything to him. But when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread, but I am dying here with hunger? I will get up and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. And he got up and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him, and ran, and embraced him, and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, Quickly, bring out the best robe, and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand, and sandals on his feet, and bring the fattened calf, and kill it, and let us eat and be merry. For this son of mine was dead, and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found. And they began to be merry. Now his older son was in the field, and when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. And he summoned one of the servants and began inquiring what these things might be. And he said to him, 
Your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he became angry and was not willing to go in and his father came out and began entreating him. But he answered and said to his father, Look, for so many years I have been serving you and I have never neglected a command of yours and yet you have never given me a kid that I might be merry with my friends. But when this son of yours came who has devoured your wealth with harlots, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, My child, you have always been here with me, and all that is mine is yours. But we had to be merry and rejoice, for this brother of yours was dead, and he has begun to live, and was lost, and has been found. Uh, one of the most powerful stories in all of the Bible. Um, I'm a Lutheran, so I have to immediately say that this does not tell the whole story because a doctrine of the atonement is missing from it and we Lutherans are very nervous talking about God apart from Jesus Christ so if this recording gets into the hands of Missouri Synod officials uh, note the beginning of it that I gave an immediate disclaimer <laughs> this is the crown of all the parables in the Bible it has no equal in all of literature um, the two sons are uh, in this story, the story is more intense and dramatic because the father and his relationship to his sons, and it presents the dramatic story of justification uh, in a very powerful way. Uh, uh, commentators throughout the centuries have seen the father in the father in the parable, and they are correct. Uh, the older son is sort of a type of the self-righteous Pharisee, and the younger is of uh, the kind that most of us are more open sinners and publicans. He typifies the sinner who turns from God and heads into unbelief. Um, the older son is the type of self-righteous sinner who's outwardly a member of the church and without faith in Jesus. Both are lost. In fact, you might call this, rather than the parable of the prodigal son, the parable of the two lost sons. So the younger prepares to leave and goes, um, inexperience, resentment of his father, resentment of some sort of control, dislike of restraint, self-will, whatever you call it, um, he goes to a far country. And the father accedes to his demand, divides the inheritance. Um, normally that doesn't occur until after the parents die, uh, but he accedes to his son's demand and uh, divides the inheritance. He quits his father's house. Uh, heads into a far, far country, which is probably a literary way of saying a long, long ways from the faith. Um, and uh, Jesus is very brief in describing how his life fares. He squanders all that he has. It goes like chaff to, like chaff to the wind. Um, the older brother says, uh, describes him as the one who has devoured his inheritance with harlots. Uh, the parable pictures the sinner after having squandered all the gifts of God, after having spent all. Uh, and as we all know, this can happen even when there's a lot of money. There can fall a vanity or sense of vanity and emptiness on the very, very wealthy. A, fa a famine sets in. He is in very deep want. He has nothing inside, no inner support or stay, nothing to fall back on, no comfort of soul in affliction. Uh, many in this stage commit suicide. Uh, Jesus uh, goes on in his parable and introduces 
what he does as things get even worse. Uh, ordinarily, he could have said that the prodigal returned at this point. Some do, but some go further, and the parable is intended to cover all. So he goes on, realizes that he is in deep, deep need, and attaches himself to a stranger that he finds out is an owner of pigs. The stranger and citizen assigns him to herd and pasture swine, which to a Jew is unthinkable. It represented utter moral defilement and was filled with shame. Here is the utter crushing of pride, uh, the cutting of the conscience in one blow, all gilding, all deception gone, the galling disgrace and the deadly heartache are all that is left. But there's more, one more drop in the bitter cup. He longs even to feed himself with what the swine are eating. He is sunk to the level of a beast. Um, he uh, began to desire to be filled from the hog feed, and no one would even give him that. Then it says he came to himself. I'd love to digress on that, but I'm uh, limited in time. The beginning is that yeah, in this whole course of sin, um, he is in a way beside himself not in his right mind, suffering from a species of insanity. Now this is not the full depth of the doctrine of sin. The full depth of the doctrine of sin is in Romans 3, and that you really want to review sometime. Uh, one of the things the Reformation had going for it was that they had a true doctrine of sin. The trouble was really deep, and so the cross really means something. Your doctrine of sin and your doctrine of the cross are logically connected. That's not just a theological truth, it's a logical truth. If you have a a superficial doctrine of sin, you're going to have a superficial doctrine of the cross. You won't have a savior, you'll have a swimming coach who's walking along the pool alongside of you and saying, keep your legs straight, kick harder. Um, and if you have a doctrine of sin that's drawn from Romans 3, you're going to need somebody to raise you from the dead while still in the flesh. Um, so one of the ways in which sin is defined here is to become rational or to become sound of mind again in turning from uh, what is absolutely ungodly. And of course God gets the credit for him coming to himself as well. Uh, it's a basic story of law and gospel. He says to himself, my father's hired men are abounding in bread. I'm perishing here with hunger. He says to himself, I'm going to admit my folly and the results of the folly. And he thinks back to his father's house. Um, I'm, gonna, I'm going to go and say to him, Father, I did sin. I'm going to go make this, uh, this confession to my father with no excuses. I've sinned against heaven. That's the real essence of it. And in thy sight. It is the humblest plea for pardon. Plea for pardon. Make me as one of your hired men. It gives up all claims to righteousness. It gives up every hope of being received because of anything good left in him. Even the rights of sonship he has given up. He go, resolves to go to the Father, still call him Father, dare to ask that at least that he take him back to the lowest place in the house. How could he possibly believe that? By the goodness of God, that's why and what he knows of his father. The confidence that his father, even in the face of all of that great sin, will from somewhere long ago and far away and deep down find a way. 
The sinner makes an open confession and asks God's grace and pardon, bringing nothing but sin to the deal. Jesus pictures the grace of God in a wonderful manner. The Father, now forgive me if I break down here, the Father is watching the road all the time. The Father is pictured as if he was constantly watching the road and he sees his son while his son is still in the distance. And at first glance, his heart is filled with compassion. This alone is our, our hope. He runs to his son, falls upon his son's neck, and covers his face with kisses. The prodigal is already pardoned. He doesn't get to utter a word of his confession. He's pardoned already. Then the father lets him start on the confession. And the son said to him, Father, I did sin against the heaven and in thy sight. No longer am I worthy to be called thy son. And the father interrupts. Father, the son doesn't even get to complete the words. It's one of the tenderest parts of any parable in all the New Testament. The son is spared even the confession. The sinner's absolution, pardon, justification, adoption are all rolled into quick. Bring out the festal robe, the best. Put it on him and give him a ring for his hand and sandals for his feet. And be bringing the calf, the fattened one, slaughter it. And eating, let us make merry because this my son was dead and he came back to life. He was one that's been lost and was found and they began to make merry. Uh, the garments of salvation put on him. The robe of righteousness Isaiah speaks of in chapter 61. The ring of sonship is put on his fingers. Uh, shoes uh, that, a, that a slave never had. Only sons had shoes. And the, and the uh, affirmation, let us be merry. The feast and its rejoicing. The absolute opposite of the boys sitting in rags among the swine. It's a preliminary of the great marriage feast of the Lamb. And the great reason for this, the father says, this my son was dead and he came back to life. God's own joy over our getting sane, and he gives us the sanity anyway. As sheep going astray, he goes and finds us. And they began to make merry, and the scene ends. But there's another son. Now that other son is lost. He's an entirely different species. He's lost while within the father's house. How and why? Because of the self-righteousness in him. He's busy in the field with his work. Um, the self-righteous are always great workers. He approaches the house. He hears music and dancing. He begins to ask a young lad what's going on. The lad is happy to tell him the good news. He states that the father has ordered a celebration. Uh, because the, he received the son back safe and sound. And the other brother at once becomes angry. He's not willing even to go in. It's a picture of the Pharisees and scribes to whom Jesus was speaking. And now behold a new mercy. The father comes to seek the lost, the other son. Somebody must have gone and told the father. He runs out and begins to beseech this son, who deserved the a dressing down of the first water and instead the father meets him with gentle entreaty now comes out all the blindness the perversity the hardness of the selfish and self-righteous brother it all boils to the surface all the alienation the proud boast of self-righteousness 
um, thrown up to his father to show him how he has never really appreciated this wonderful son of his. Never once transgressing, I always did what was asked of me. Um, he turns to blame his father for all of his slaving and perfect obedience. What did the father give him? Not even a kid, let alone a party. Worse, the father is shamelessly partial and unjust. All these contrasts were intended to be vicious cuts at the father. Might not the father have turned upon this son in just anger, denounced his wicked words and heart, and used his right of revoking the inheritance? Yes, and he does just the opposite. Very firmly says, child, son had never called him father, child, thou art ever with me, that is, all that my ha I have is yours. Um, the proof of his, the father being the best friend of the second son, all mine is thine. More than that, the father and all his love were his into the bargain. Jesus here entreats the Pharisees to give up all self-righteousness and realize that they, like everybody else, are in utter deep need and nothing but need. We are bundles of pure need and we put ourselves there and it's our own fault. We imagine we didn't, but we did. Um, so, out of this parable, and by the way, if, if uh, you have friends who are agnostics, this one parable can have an unbelievable effect uh, if somebody's never read it. If uh, you've got someone who doesn't know the world of the Bible, this one parable can have incredible effect on the person who has no idea what's between those covers. None whatever. Uh, and I encourage you to, to uh, make use of it in that way. But also, also to make use of it in a way that is um, for us or for you that the Father's love for us is fully cognizant of what we have done. That is, it isn't like a grandfather who doesn't know the details and just sort of winks and says, well, it's all okay, I'm sure. Here we have a situation where there really is pure holiness along with pure love of us, and we flat out have rejected that, every single one of us. Um, if you want to think of in Adam, think of Romans 5, that by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. We were in Adam. Uh, with my students at California, I always illustrate with Robert Goulet's wonderful smoker's whiskey baritone voice singing the place of Lancelot in Camelot, where he sings C'est moi. Uh, Lancelot sings, The soul of a knight should be a thing remarkable, his heart and his mind as pure as morning dew, with a will and a self-restraint that's the envy of every saint, he could easily work a miracle or two. To love and desire, he ought to be unsparkable. The ways of the flesh should offer no allure, but where in the world is there in the world a man so untouched and pure? C'est moi, c'est moi. <laughs> I'm forced to admit tis I, I humbly reply. That man in whom these qualities bloom, c'est moi, c'est moi, tis I. I've never strayed from all I believe, I'm blessed with an iron will, 
Had I been made the partner of Eve, we'd be in Eden still. <laughs> c'est moi, c'est moi, the angels have chose to fight their battles below, and here I stand, as pure as a prayer, incredibly meek, with virtue to spare, the godliest man I know, c'est moi. <laughs> and Paul in Romans 5 answers back, wrong, Lancelot, wrong. You were in Adam creating this situation, and of course, two days later, he's in bed with the king's wife. Um, wrong, Lancelot. That kind of background of sin, and then this parable of the father is a powerful, powerful combination. One of the forms of insanity of sin, I'm convinced, in our generation, aided and abetted by the government, but I won't digress on that, one of the forms of the insanity of sin in our day is the form of, I don't need a father. I don't need one. It is insane. It is a form of insanity. It's not just sin. It's a form of being insane. Um, we did not all have good fathers. I know that's true. The stories are ugly, sometimes really ugly. But it doesn't mean that we didn't need one from the very, very beginning. We still did, from the very, very start. Uh, I have a friend of mine who was, when he was alive, uh, missing terribly, uh, was probably the expert in the Western world on the place of fathers. He was an American Baptist pastor, was the professor of pastoral psychology at Fuller Theological Seminary when it was a much better place than it is now and um, was a P-51 pilot fly flying against 109s um, in the Second World War, probably the best pilot we had. He was Chuck Yeager's wingman. And he was the one, uh, much of what I'll be doing here with you in Birmingham is, is utterly dependent on things that he taught us about fathers. When I do the longer session on Saturday, and Paul and I might do Q&A, if I can find any excuse to do it, I'm going to try and cast a spell over you. I'm going to try to cast a spell in the sense of talking about the good magic that is a father and what it does uh, for all of us uh, if we have one. And part of the good news of all of this, and I'll make more mention of it as I'm together with you, is this thing can always be met. In other words, if we didn't get it in the beginning, it's terrible. But there's all, it always has a way in. Uh, it's never too late. If I'm uh, 70 years old uh, and somebody functions like that for me, somebody who's 85 or 90, the need is still the same. It's just as deep and just as long. So in one way or another, in everything that I do with you here, it's going to be in, as I say, in one way or another, a ramification of this parable in Luke chapter 15, um, where the Father, without any sort of incentive or reason in us for him to do it, uh, like the, the one seeking the one lost sheep, does this and at no charge and welcomes us back as if uh, nothing wrong had ever taken place. This is unbelievable because the father knows very very well something very deeply wrong has happened and somehow 
in the death of Jesus Christ, he makes it all possible that Christmas comes, and Christmas is a good Christmas, um, that there is, is not just, uh, there are not just for a child presents galore with their names on them, but there is for the adults the great feast, and we see a picture of it here in the parable of the prodigal. The feast begins, and there isn't even a force to be standing up confession so that everybody hears what awful things you've done, ever. It will never, never occur for those who are in Christ. It will never, never happen. For those who are not, you'll get to confess before the whole world every ugly thing or have it exposed. But for those in Christ, it will never, never occur. It's better than we would ever, ever imagine. I'll stop with that, and we can uh, maybe have a time for Q&A. May I ask the first question? How does refathering or reconfiguration occur to someone who's 30 or 70 or 16? How does that happen? It's simpler than we would imagine. Uh, My friend who who was the psychotherapist, probably had the largest practice in the U.S., said it's in many ways simpler than we would think. Every male friendship that has a grace to it is a form of it in the simplest way. Um, I'm always on the watch for this in movies. Uh, my, my kids can predict what movies that I like. There is always philia. Now by philia, it's one of the Greek words for love. You might like to check C.S. Lewis's The Four Loves. Philadelphia. Philia is non-homosexualized love between those of the same sex. Um, uh, French would say camaraderie. The um, women wonder why we men watch Tombstone 19 times. And we do. We watch Tombstone 19 times. I think R.C. has watched it more times than I, but it's a close race, R.C. Sproul. There's a reason men watch Tombstone. Uh, because it's because of Doc and Wyatt. And the Doc and Wyatt uh, isn't common in our day anymore. Uh, same sort of thing I see in Band of Brothers uh, and didn't see in Saving Private Ryan very much. But in Band of Brothers, you do see it. Um, it's not very uh, glamorous or anything, but it is from the simplest, simplest uh, sort of roots, men who uh, would go to the wall for each other, and they don't necessarily say that, but you know you could bet your mother into white slavery the guy would do it. Um, (coughs) And you're right, you know, when you sense that, and you're right. Um, Think of the depression that guys went into after World War II, maybe some of you experienced that. It was the first time in their lives that they put their hands into the life of another guy, and the guy honored it. And uh, then the end of the war was the loss of that, and it was just devastating, absolutely devastating. We need it the way we need air. Uh, And other men have to be the ones to give it. Uh, One of the guys who's doing some experimental work on this, I'm certainly not in the field, but I, I listen a lot to it because I'm so interested in it, is Robert Bly, the poet. Now, Bly, I don't even know if Bly's a Christian, but he may be just working with general revelation. 
but he, he gets something as the, as the child of an alcoholic father. There's something he gets about what he didn't get and knows how deep it's affected him. I watched the, and you might have seen the Bill Moyers interview with Robert Bly called A Gathering of Men. And in that, he, the, the turning point, the linchpin in it comes when he says, I realized I was over 40 years old and I'd never written a poem about my father. And you can just watch him and say, or see, um, that was just, when he thought of it, overwhelming, that there was a reason behind it. And then he starts telling his story of growing up as the child of an alcoholic father. Um, as I say, I, I, I don't even know if Robert Bly is a Christian, but I watch his work. Iron John, Sibling Society, some of you might be familiar with some of his work. He knows that we men are operating in ways that are weaker than it was intended we would be. Uh, I, I want to ask you one other question, take executive privilege here, uh, uh, because this is a taste of what we're going to hear all weekend, the taste of what is for us here at the Advent for the whole weekend. You told me a story once about a car wreck. <laughs> Will you tell us that story, yeah. and then we'll open it up to yeah. other questions. Um, I'm here to tell stories. That's really what I meant by cast a spell. I'm going to tell stories about my dad. Um, I did one in the article in Modern Reformation, but uh, here's one that that, uh, that has always stuck with me and always will. I was about 16 years old in high school. I was part of a high school fraternity, and we thought we were pretty hot stuff. And one of those weeks during the year, the pledges would not show up at the weekly meeting and uh, would hide somewhere and leave clues for us around the city. So uh, we got into my car, an old Buick, a straight eight, that has a reason in the story, it has a long straight eight in it, and drunk, we pulled out, I was driving, I pulled very carefully out of a blind uh, alley or street in Tacoma, Washington, just inched my way out, and by the time I could see the car coming that was going to hit me, it was just too late. There was nothing I could do. I had that long hood. Hmm? It was a straight eight. He hit me. My Buick collapsed on the street. His Ford lost a headlight ring. <laughs> which I always thought was unjust. But anyway. Um, and I called my father. Uh, my father was a surgeon. Um, who had trained under Charlie Mayo, and he died at the Mayo Clinic at 52 in open heart surgery. Uh, his father was one of the eight surgeons who started the Mayo Clinic. So my whole family is medical. There's not a clergyman in the family. I phoned my father. He says, is everybody okay? I said, yeah, we're all drunk, but we're okay. <laughs> <laughs> he says, stay where you are. I'll order a tow truck there. I'll come and pick you up. Just stay put. So he loads five drunk 16-year-olds into his car and delivers them home. We drive home. He comes into the house asks my mother to leave us alone, a very wise move. And we go into a room and he puts his arm around me as we're sitting on the couch and he says, what do you feel? And I say, starting to cry, I'm shaking. And he says, that's okay, that's shock. That's the way it goes, what else? And I don't remember what I blubbered. 
um, those hours, he had the right to ground me till 2035. <laughs> and any, any gathering of 12 men tried and true would have said that he acted justly. And he looked at me, there wasn't even a break in stride. He looked at me and said, you know what I think you need? I think you need a new car. Why don't you go looking, see what you can find, and uh, let me know. I'll take a lunch hour, and we'll go take a look and see what we can find to replace it. I became a theist in that 10 seconds. My father, then, was being what St. Thomas Aquinas called analogy. He was not identical with my Heavenly Father. He was not exactly opposite by any means of my Heavenly Father, but he was like him in a lesser, lesser degree. Now, Lutherans will almost never use St. Thomas, but I'm going to here. Um, he was being an analogy. And this was not just one oddball occurrence. It occurred over and over and over and over and over. Very few sons have stories like that, but we need them. We all need them. Um, so I'm speaking especially to the men. I can't answer for daughters, but I'm sure there's an equivalent. I believe it, and I think I'm right, that there is a, a father-daughter thing. All I've been able to do with that is remember back to watching it from the outside with my father and his daughter and my own experience with my own daughter. So this is going to focus mostly on what I know something about, and that's father-son. But we're missing it desperately in America, and it's killing us, absolutely killing us. Yes, uh, he had a, has a wonderful relationship with his father who happens not to be a Christian. And what, what would I have to say to somebody who really is trying to lead his father to a saving relationship with Christ? The first thing I have to say is something that I think maybe nobody says very often. I get the idea that nobody says it very often. But I still think it might be right that those who are closest to us those within the family, it will probably be someone else who evangelizes them, and not we. Now that's a generalization from being a pastor over 30 years. We want it intensely, of course, but it'll probably be another guy who does it. Somebody might be his own age, maybe even older, who's a Christian, who does it in a way that we can't from up from the bottom doesn't mean it never happens, but in general, I think it will be somebody from outside the family. We need help. We need help from somebody else. And this, the, one of the ramifications of that is that it should lift some guilt off your shoulders that somehow you're not doing it right. It isn't that the son isn't doing it right. It's that he's probably the wrong guy. He needs a friend of his. He needs a friend his own age who's a Christian, probably, and you won't even be around when he's talking with him. Pray for that. Next question. 
uh, Michael Cooper. The idea of uh, tough love is heretical. <laughs> the question. Well, as I say, I'm, uh, is the idea of tough love heretical? Uh, as I say, in my time here with you, I have to keep giving disclaimers that I really am not in the field of psych, though I have tremendous interest in these things. Um, I defer many times to the professionals. Uh, I think that many times all of the recipes that we are told as fathers as to what is most important that we do with our sons is simply muddled. More than heretical, it's just muddled. We're repeating out of our own lives what was done to us. What was done to us might not be the wisest thing in the world. Um, that's why I need, uh, in certain instances, other men my age or older to talk with about this, to check out uh, things. I wouldn't so much put it in the, in the realm of heresy as much as it is, well, let me say it this way. You might have heard it said that Luther called reason Frau Hulda, the devil's whore. And for this little quip, Luther is seen as a total irrationalist by many non-Lutheran theologians. Luther said that in a particular context. He said it more of our intuitive idea of how we would be justified as sinners before a holy God. I think a better rendering of what Luther said was, don't trust your intuition as to how you're saved, because your intuition is, is from Adam. Your intuition is fallen, it will lie to you. The way in which you are saved, you must listen to scripture, because your intuition is going to lie to you. Now what does our intuition say? Our intuition says good people go to heaven and bad people go to hell. And Luther there said, that is Frau Hulda, the devil's whore. Your intuition is fallen and it's lying to you. Don't trust it. In the same way, our intuition as fathers, if we don't get it in check, is to say to ourselves, what I need to do most of all for my son is to teach him to be a responsible man. If Luther is right in his theology of law and gospel, the law is there all the time in the human heart. It's no new news when the pastor preaches the law. Everything in us says, yep, that's right, pastor. Yep, I am guilty. Yep, uh-huh. It's all in there. When the pastor preaches Jesus to us and his atoning death and this one-sided deal that saves us, our heart goes, huh? Huh? That's crazy. That's immoral. He can't do that. Well, what part would I play then? And the answer is sin, darkness, um, hatred of God. That's our part. And his part is he gives his son into death on our behalf, like the father here. Uh, gives his son into death in our behalf. That's the way we are saved. And it's completely non-intuitive and completely unlike anything we meet in this world, in business or anything else. And Luther said, listen to that one, because that's the true one. So I always get nervous around tough love because it's so intuitionally correct. Am I against, self, uh, against indulgence? Yes. 
but I'm not nearly as worried about indulgence as I am worried about us as fathers doing what our intuition tells us is correct and then feeling righteous like the second brother at the end of it. Gave him everything I could. Had 18 years to do it. He either gets it or he doesn't. He's out of here. Huh? I think all of that is from the pit. It's all from the pit. One more question. Dr. Little. Yeah. Repeat the question. Oh, yeah. I'm sorry. Would you would you agree, Rod, that the first act of love of the father was to let the son start down that road? And I answer yes. Yes. And the light in the father's house still burns always. Come on home. Come on home. Uh, Rod will be speaking to it at uh, 12 today. You have a unique opportunity here. You will never hear anyone uh, like Rod Rosenblatt. He won't say it. I'll say it. Uh, he has a major role in repelling moralistic versions of evangelical Christianity as well as antinomian versions of liberal Christianity. Uh, and bring your friends uh, who desperately need to hear it, uh, especially men whose father uh, issues have resulted in extremely unsanctified type A and type B behavior. Come back at noon, and I'm going to ask Rod to give us a prayer to, to send us on our way, and then return here for lunch at noon. You'll be out of here by 1 o'clock, and Saturday from 9 to 12, and Sunday at 10. Thank you, Rod. Will you bless us yeah. and say a prayer for us? We pray. Lord God and Father, again, we praise and thank you, not as we ought, but as we're able. And most of all, for the gift of your well-beloved Son given to the cross for our sin. We ask your protection and angelic blessing this day that we fall into no kind of sin and run into no kind of danger. For we ask it for the sake of him who died and rose in our behalf. Amen. Amen. Uh, Rod's available for about 15 minutes if you want to talk to him. Unhooked here. My version. My version.